And please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4 with me. I have the text there for you. Actually, quite a bit um, of the context included. Are, we have come to verses 29 down to verse 32, but it's part of a larger section in this first uh, chapter, the second half of the book. I say second half because scholars agree there are really a, a, an abrupt shift happens at the beginning of chapter 4. It has been building upon the foundation laid in chapters 1 through 3, where the glorious exposition of God's great salvation was on display in those opening three chapters. Those opening three chapters were about God saving a people for himself, about our union with Christ for all eternity because of God's work in saving, his work in electing us in, God, in Christ and sealing us by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a celebration of salvation, our great salvation that's totally wrought by God in his wonderful grace. It's a testimony to his saving grace. The first three chapters, it's about Christ in us, the hope of glory, new creatures, every one of us in Christ. And as a result, the whole community is a new community, a redeemed community. That's what the opening three chapters are about. We are no longer spiritually dead. We have been made alive together with Christ. So now, chapters 4 through 6 are about how we as Christians, settled in Christ, how we are to manifest that we are Christians. Chapters 4 through 6 are not, okay, are not, God did his part in the first three, now you go do your part. That would be futile and none of us could live up to that. The second half of Ephesians is about how God, in his continuing grace, will work out our new identity and our outward actions. Now, we're responsible to engage in this process, but even knowledge of that responsibility, sensitivity to this is God's call, even that is a gift of God's grace to us, that we would desire to follow Christ's likeness as it's displayed here. We put off the old, and now we put on the new in keeping with who we really are now in Christ. Here now, as I read God's word, I'll start at verse 21 in order for us to have the full context of verses 29 through 32. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and authoritative word. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Please bow with me as I lead us in prayer. 
Father, while we are a generally forgetful people, we do remember daily how bad off we would be if it were not for your saving grace. When we read this passage about our old clothes, the clothes we wore before you made us alive together with Christ, we know how putrid those clothes are. Lying and anger, stealing, jealousy, corrupt speech, bitterness, malice. Father, help us to recognize these things hanging on in our lives and put them off so that we might put on what is ours in Christ, our Savior. Help us to put on speaking the truth in love, hard work, generosity, contentment with all that you've given us, speech that is grace-giving, kindness, empathy, and forgiving spirits. Lord, we truly want this for ourselves and for our church family. We truly want the world to know that Christ is real and the salvation that he brings is true. Please magnify your saving name through this church family called Redeemer. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So Paul in Ephesians has described Christians as a people who were dead but were made alive through Christ. Paul has described the human condition as in need of a resurrection. Paul does not describe the human condition as sickness or brokenness or illness. As if we only need some medicine. Paul describes people as spiritually dead in need of being raised to life. There's no mistake with the language that Paul uses in the opening chapter. So I think that bringing to your attention the person of Lazarus is a helpful illustration as we consider what Paul teaches here in chapter 4 and really beyond. Lazarus of Bethany, dead four days in the tomb, four days, rotting and stinking in the grave by that time. In the grave clothes that he was wrapped in, they had to be stinking as well. No doubt covered with the ooze of decay that comes from a corpse in that state. Nothing pretty whatsoever about a dead body for four days wrapped in those clothes. Those clothes, those cloths were there for a dead person. They were meant to hold that person together as the body decayed. So when Lazarus was raised, the grave clothes he was standing in had to come off. They didn't fit a dead person or an alive person anymore. They were made for dead people. They did not fit who was underneath it any longer. They did not tell the true story about who was beneath it. Uh, Those cloths became animated because the person inside was alive. And Jesus said, unbind him. And we understand that he was unbound. Those clothes that were no longer fitting were thrown off. Now we should assume, and I think it's proper to do so, he didn't stand there long before people got him the clothes that fit a living person again that accented his being alive, that demonstrated the person underneath was living. This is, in many ways, a metaphor for the Christian life. We've been raised from our dead state. We no longer should wear our grave clothes, but throw them off. And we should put on clothes that match who we really are. I say this importantly in that order. You don't put clothes on so that you become a Christian or that you now do your part in your salvation. 
No, you are saved in Christ. If your rest is in the finished work of Jesus, you only rest in him because he's made you alive already. He's not going to make you dead again. Now, we are to live out the actual position we have before the Father outwardly. That's what the essence of these commands are about. Live as who you really are underneath now. These outward actions are clothes we put on. They're the way we act with each other, the way we interact with the world, we view the world, what we say, what we do. These are clothes we put on the way he uses the metaphor the apostle does here. And so we continue with that metaphor walking through the passage now down to verse 29. We are to live out our new identity in Christ by throwing off our old clothes and putting on our new clothes. Now, thus far in the verses that precede, we have learned to throw off lies and dishonesty, spinning stuff about ourselves and others, manipulating things with the way we say things to get them our way. We throw that off. That's the old clothes speaking. That's the dead person trying to get through. But now in Christ, we put on speaking the truth. We know we do so in love based on a passage that happened earlier, that we can be honest now about ourselves and each other. We throw off rage and anger that seeks to justify ourselves, to vindicate ourselves. Rage and anger that comes from the way you hurt me or impede my happiness or my pursuits. We throw that off in favor of a righteous indignation that gets fired up, if you will, for the things that violate God's holiness or his justice. We care about his holiness more than we care about our own rights. That shift now makes us still passionate, but we do so in a righteous way, in a righteously indignant way. That's something we learn to put on in Christ that we do not have the capacity to do apart from Jesus. We also learn that we can put off dishonesty. We can put off covetousness. We don't have to be jealous of what other people have anymore and then cheat and steal to get it. No. Work with whatever God's given you to do in labor. Work with your hands. Just work hard. Do it honestly. And look to be generous with whatever God gives you through those means. These are all not too subtle shifts of throwing off one thing and then picking up and putting on another. It has to do with displacing one thing and replacing it with another. That's what we have now again in the passage before us, starting at verse 29. Verse 29 and 30 teach us to put off corrupt talk and put on edifying or grace-giving speaking patterns or habits. Look at verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Talking to the church, talking to every believer here, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Some versions say profane speech or unwholesome words. And that certainly, yeah, that could be swearing or profane language, but there's more here for sure by use of this word for corrupt talk. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouth. And we know by the rest of the context, it's a pattern of speech being spoken of. Let no corrupt pattern of speaking come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. So don't let destructive words come out of your mouth. Put constructive words in and out that they would go forth into other people's lives, into the community. But only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So put away the language that tears down, that makes people sick, that makes them hurt, that tears them down. Put away that. Put on speech that encourages and lifts each other up that builds us up, that strengthens us where we were weak, 
that in, engages in us in a way that makes us move further, further towards Christ, closer to Jesus as a result of the words and the encouragements and the exhortations that we speak. Now, as fits the occasion, it should be true what you're saying, but look for ways to build up rather than finding ways to tear down. Let's look more closely at this corrupt talk that's referred to in verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. The actual word in the Greek is a reference to putrid, something that's putrid or filthy or foul. It actually can be attributed to rotting fruit or rotting fish. You can just imagine how that smells, what that's like when something starts to rot. When your speech is rotting, corrupt talk, it has the effect of rotting other stuff out and making everything smell. You know, this last uh, tomato season just ended about a week ago for me. It officially ends when I think the last tomatoes are going to ripen in the vine. I tear them out and I throw them in our fire pit. It's a, a solemn moment for sure. Uh, the tomato growing season usually lasts two months. I try to put some in that go earlier and then they kind of are popping for throughout the rest of the summer. Now, I used to do more in the way of saving a bunch and then turning them all into sauce or canning or whatever, but now what I've been doing is just eating them as they come off, almost like a piece of fruit. I put them in a salad, I put them on a sandwich, I do save some and freeze them, and then in another month or so, when I have my first dough on the ground, I will then have some venison to mix in, and I will make uh, sauce with some of the frozen tomatoes that I have accumulating in the freezer. But I have a bowl that sits in the kitchen, and our kitchen is very clean, and that's not because of me, it's just because it is, and the keeper of that kitchen makes sure that it always even looks good. So the bowl has to look a certain way, or I'm not allowed to keep it there. So I bring in the fresh tomatoes and put them on the top, and I'll take some off, I'll cut them, I'll use them, whatever. Sometimes, though, I don't keep on top of the harvest, and one starts rotting at the bottom. In the middle of the bowl, you can't see it. Now, the kitchen looks fine, and all of a sudden, you start smelling something rank. It's a terrible smell. Rotten tomatoes are terrible to smell. I think it's the garbage can, that something's happened with the garbage can. So I take the bag out, I look and sniff around. It's not that. It's the bowl. The bowl looks good on the outside, but if you get closer, it really stinks. Then you start to take the tomatoes out and you find the rotten one. It doesn't even look rotten on top, it's on the bottom. That rotten tomato has effect of stinking up the whole bowl. And so I have to take it out, throw it out, and then I've got to wash all the other tomatoes because they've absorbed some of the stink. Let no corrupt talk come from our mouths. It's like a rotten tomato in a bowl, and it makes everybody stink when we talk like that. And we all got to get washed after we listen to enough of it, because it does nothing but make us rot and smell. Let no corrupting talk come from your mouths, Paul says. What do we put on if we put that off? Verse 29 says, But only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. I love the longer explanation. We could all understand what corrupt talk is. It comes so natural to us, it seems, especially in our old clothing of our dead sinful self. But all of us recognize how easy it is to say the negative thing that tears down first. But only instead speak such as good for building up, as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So we put off corrupt words and we put on grace-giving words. This goes with truth speaking, as we've learned earlier in this epistle. Speak words that fit the occasion. We're not talking about flattery. If there's something to be noted that's encouraging, let's note it. Let's make an effort. We go after speaking encouragement. That will necessarily mean less time for us to speak corrupting thoughts or talk. Now, this doesn't mean you don't have to confront hard issues. Difficult talk is not corrupt talk. In fact, difficult 
talk that could be truth talk done in love could actually be the very thing that's spoken of. We're giving words that will build up, that will edify. It has to do with why we're saying what we're saying. Is the purpose to build that person up in the body of Christ up? Or is it to tear them down, make ourselves a little higher, make them look a little worse so we gain some traction or they lose some, some kind of reputation? Whatever it is, all of what I've just spoken of stinks. It's rotten. We're to put away that and put on that which is life-giving, grace-giving, encouraging. Think of your words and how words of encouragement you've received from people in your life have served to really keep you going or motivate you, oppress you. It was four years ago, almost exactly this time, four years ago, when I was taking AJ around to different colleges to figure out where he might go. And we visited three or four, uh, I think it was four total, where we sat down and had interviews with their admissions department and they'd have a representative talk to you about why this is a great place to go. He'd go sit in a class, talk to a coach, try to get a picture, a full picture of what the place was going to be in really a short time to determine where to go. I could tell by the second uh, visit, he was already overwhelmed with trying to think through this and what, what, how do I pick this place? It seems like a big decision it's such, with such little time to decide. And the third place we got to was Dort University, where he ended up going. And one of the things they did was a little different, is they had him sit down with a professor and just talk to the professor in the department he was going into, which in his case is business. So we sat down with this professor. I was a little bit fatigued on these trips, to be honest with you. And I'd gotten used to the same kind of pitches about how great their programs were and all this and all that. And I'm, of course, what am I thinking of? Well, how much money is this going to cost? That's what I really want to know. And hoping the cheapest one would be the one that he just thought fit perfectly. At any rate... This professor starts out, introduces himself, and says to AJ, looks him in the eyes and said, AJ, what you decide about the next four years will determine your next 40. And then he asks him some personal questions. They start discussing. I didn't remember the guy's name until recently and only vaguely remembered that comment, although I did. Fast forward four years. Uh, A month ago, Sherry and I went to watch one of his games. We figured we better go to one of his early games with the COVID thing going on. They could shut down any moment. So we went to like the second game they played, watched his game, visited the campus. And afterwards, we were in near the snack area. Now he's a senior. And we're sitting there waiting to get something to eat. And a professor walks by and says, hi, AJ. They interact. I can tell this kind of neat to see. This is a mentoring relationship clearly with this guy. I didn't remember this was the same guy that I met four years ago. And so AJ said, I want you to meet my parents. And Dr. Hoekstra, do you remember when we first met, you told me that the next four years of my life would determine the next 40? I've never forgotten that. It's helped me throughout my whole time here at Dort. And and they had a great exchange. You can tell how happy he was to hear that. All I'm saying is something that I did not think much of resonated in my son's mind and heart, and it affected him. And I'm telling you that those words of encouragement, you speak to someone that are thoughtful and intentional, they go a long way. I know for a fact that that kind of thing done towards me over the years here has, has, been, has served to build me up and encourage me, it's, it's keep me going at times. I'm sure you can think of that in your life from parents, from friends, uh, from your children back to you. When that starts happening, that's an amazing thing too. When they speak a word of encouragement back, words of encouragement, how powerful they are. are they? If I did a survey, you would, I know you would all agree. They are super powerful. Why don't we do it more? And if we did more of that, we wouldn't do as much corrupt talk. It's just we wouldn't have time for it. Now, the corrupt talk is easy. That's the problem. I usually like to, on an illustration, end in the positive one. But I can't help but think of a negative one to tell you because I think it shows you how powerful just the word, the, the discussions we choose to have. 
So it wasn't too long ago, maybe six weeks ago, and we were you know, into the whole discussion of the masks thing and get into emails, which way, that way, and here, and this person, that person, with the school that we're running to. And we have the, so all nonstop, it seems like every day all I'm hearing is something about a mask. It was driving me crazy. And so I was with a couple of the brothers, and I said, I'm sick of this thing, and I started griping. And it was griping. It wasn't a legitimate discussion about the, uh, the, what, how we should handle it, because that's, that's a worthy discussion. This was purely, I wanted them to agree with how much this is all the pain in this and that. I just wanted them to agree with me and join in the gripe fest. What good would that have done? We all would have been mad. It would have been great, right, as we walked out mad. But one of the brothers said, you know, I've been thinking about this situation a little bit. And you know what I was thinking about is if you would go over to Iran right now where the church is illegal and they're meeting underground and many people are dying because they're professing faith in Christ and alliance with Christ. If you were in Iran right now and the government, no matter what you think about how much the government should do this or that, if you were there in Iran and the government all of a sudden said, you know what, Christians, you could come out and worship, but you got to wear masks. Do you think the Iranian Christians would say, forget it. We're not going to do that. I can't breathe in it. I can't do this and name all the things we name. They would not. You know what I'm saying. All I'm trying to suggest is that even the angles we go on certain things, and I don't mind picking a hot button one because I did it myself. So I know, I know the prevalence of getting into whatever topic it is that kind of irks us. Take whatever it is. Why am I bringing it up with brothers and sisters? Is it to get together and be mad? Or is it to solve something that should be? That's one thing. Or might I think of a way to encourage in a different way that could build up strengthen, because everybody needs that strengthening all the time. I am sure everyone here needs an encouraging word. This is something we can now do in Christ. We could put that on. We could talk that way, and it's powerful when you have these kinds of discussions one with another. Speak words that are good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Speak words that strengthen unity. Speak words that enhance the fellowship of the body. Speak words that cheer others up. Speak words that comfort others. When people are spoken to you, are spoken to by you, they should leave feeling encouraged. It's easy to critique things and speak critical words. It takes more effort, but in Christ we can do this. Look for the encouraging word to say and to speak. Now, We should not forget this power of words bleeds into all the rest of these things we're to put on. And Jesus said in Matthew 12, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. Then when James was writing his epistle, he spent quite a bit of time on the power of what we say and what we speak. He said, the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. James did not pull back at what he saw, the effects of this corrupt type of speech happening. The damage of corrupt talk is hard to calculate, but one area that is meant to strike us, given how much God has done for us, is verse 30. It's in this context, verse 30 comes to us. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. So in other words, by corrupt talk, we would be grieving the Holy Spirit of God. Not the talk itself, but what it does. It 
disrupts our unity. It breaks us down. It no longer allows the body of Christ to point to Christ. That's the point. And the Holy Spirit's chief work is to glorify Christ, to bring us together so that we can glorify Christ. So using this very human way of describing the person, the third person of the Trinity, the text says we grieve the Holy Spirit if we do this. And we can take what comes in verse, the verses that follow, 31 and 32, also to be grieving the Holy Spirit when we act these, this way. Because we're not who we've been redeemed to be when we act that way. And it grieves the Holy Spirit, as the passage says. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. It doesn't say if you do this stuff, he's going to unseal you. This is a, a, a term of affection that God has for us in the person of the, of the Holy Spirit who has sealed us, who can be disobeyed, who can be grieved, who could be dishonored, lied to. We see this in the New Testament. Now he's saying to you Christians, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by wearing the old clothes, keeping the old clothes on, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Put off and put on. Put off corrupt talk, put on edifying grace-giving talk. Now look at verse 31 and verse 32 for this second piece of clothing that we take off and put on. Now, it's a multifaceted piece of clothing. It's almost like the apostle gets to the end and ties together a continuum of description about the old clothes that we wore as dead sinners. It put all this stuff off and put on something new. Put off the bitterness and wrath that comes with being a person outside of Christ and put on kindness and forgiveness that now because of Christ, you can put on. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Now let's take these quickly, but one at a time. I think it does represent a bit of a continuum that builds up. Bitterness, that's this walking around with a vindictive spirit, a resentful spirit. I've been done wrong. I'm bitter about it. I'm not justified. I haven't been made right. And I just carry a certain demeanor that ends up affecting everything else. I'm resentful. I'm seething all the time. I'm always looking for how something's unfair to me. That's a bit of, that's bitterness. Now that only ever ends one place and that's with wrath. I'm angry at everybody and I lash out at others. It's a pointed anger. Bitterness, wrath, and anger. This is just the general reality that I will be a mad person. This stems from who we are before we know Christ. Now, we have moments where we lapse back. We pick up that old clothes and we try to put it on. And we recognize that. We're convicted by that as we read this. These things only lead to clamor, which is now outspoken. It's, it's loud outbursts, indignant outbursts, public shouting, raised voices, cringe moments when people are mad about something. And everybody can tell that they're trying to defend themselves and their honor by what they say. And you know when you start to do this, if you've ever done this, that you're going to be embarrassed for a long time by what you just did. You can't take it back. You say something and you just can't pull it back. It's already out, the barrel of the gun, so to speak, and you can't pull it back. This is what clamor refers to. Slander is often what comes in the actual verbiage of this clamor, where you pinpoint people because you're mad and you say something about them that tears them down and hopefully in your mind at that moment hurts their credibility with others listening. You slander them. All of this rests in the last phrase, along with all malice, hatred. Just a sense, a general sense of hatred. Now I hope when we read through this continuum of things, your reaction is, I don't feel the depth of those things any longer in Christ. But I hope also we're honest and say, 
but boy, do I recognize how I sometimes pick up that old clothes again. If you looked at me sometimes, you would think I like the old clothes because I have trouble with this at times. Paul knows this. He's saying this to us as Christians. He recognizes this will still be a struggle as far as putting the old clothes back on. But here's the continuum that works the other direction. And we'll see it in verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. You know, I witnessed that continuum of bitterness that led down to malice in the church one time in my life when I was a new believer. I was just starting to go to a church, a local church. And at that time, those folks in that church, still to this day, I think of them with, with nothing but great thoughts of the way they, they opened the Bible to me, were patient with me as a young believer, and helped me along in the faith. But there was a glimpse I got at what happens even in redeemed communities that kind of shocked me. Now, I grew up Roman Catholic, and in Roman Catholic Church, you didn't have congregational meetings. There were no such things. You got edicts, and you got orders, and this is what happened. And no one even thought about, are we going to have a meeting and discuss what Father Peter thinks? It was never like that. So when I got to this other church, um, the governance was similar to what we have here, but they had a lot of congregational meetings, and people could just say whatever. That's a bad idea, in my opinion, and I, maybe it's because of how I was scarred from this first meeting I went to. But I sat in the meeting about halfway up. I was just so intrigued, but this is going to be interesting to hear. I'd only been to worship services and classes and things at that point. Everyone had nice suits on and nice dresses on, and they all carried their Bibles, big fat Bibles too, King James ones. And everybody was talking a certain kind of churchy talk, and I didn't know the talk, so it was the only time in my life I'd been pretty quiet was when I was trying to figure out the churchy talk. And I was listening to the way they would say this, say that, in a big stained glass window with a, with a lamb and Jesus. Whole, I mean, the whole feel of everything churchy that I'd thought about, but I also appreciated their handling of the words. So I'm sitting there thinking, this must be how everything's done here is how it's done in the Bible, because that's the way I've been learning it. And I was sitting there, and minutes into this congregational meeting, I kid you not, uh, one person started accusing another person across the way of selfishness or arrogance, and another person stood up to back up that person. There was a bit of a shouting match in the congregational meeting. I could almost picture it like it was yesterday. I'd never seen anything like it. I mean, I, at that point, I was into professional wrestling, and I thought, this is a battle royal about to break out with these folks. And then the pastor tried to quell it, and then someone from the audience accused him of something. It wasn't some huge scandal, but it was something he'd done in a business dealing that had nothing to do with the church meeting. And I'm not It was the most cringy thing. I, I've been in a lot of weird family situations, a large Italian family, but they'll say anything at any time. I'm just be ready for whatever. But not a church congregational meeting. Even Christians can fall into this. And so we've got to put off corrupt talk and we've got to put on what it says in verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Let's look at the continuum here. It goes from kindness to tender-heartedness to being forgiving with one another. I suggest a potential continuum that builds here as well in Paul's mind as it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. First of all, put on kindness towards one another. Staying as still as I can. I don't know what to do with that. I know that you all wake up better, though, so it works out pretty nicely, sermon listening-wise, when the fuzz hits. Um, put on kindness towards one another. That's the first thing we do in response or to put off the corrupt talk. Now, what is kindness in particular? Kindness has to do with serving other people at their point of need. Um, someone is hurting in some way. How can I come help their hurt is what kindness looks like. How could I relieve what they're hurting concerning. Kindness prompts us to 
Come alongside of someone and help lift them up and help them down the road a little further. Even if it means getting down in the gutter to help somebody or it costs us something, we're going we're to show kindness to them. So if we do that, if we look around for ways where people are hurting or needing encouragement and we strive after that, that's going to keep us, again, from this bitterness in all these things that compile and make us think too long and hard about what's wronged us in some fashion. Kindness is a way to really manifest Christ-likeness. Paul, when he was writing to the Romans, he said, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. See, kindness towards others will draw them to God. They'll give thanks to God for your kindness to them at the point they needed it. This is why we show kindness to others. In Titus 3, 4 through 5, some of the most powerful verses on God's kindness, what we're trying to manifest when we show kindness to each other. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Paul indicates to Titus, the pastor at Crete, the underlying motivation for our kindness, for our tenderheartedness, for our forgiving spirits is the salvation we have. We can only show this if we've been saved if we've been regenerated. This is the point of Paul speaking it to the church because we can see this realized in our life. He says also, not only put on kindness, but put on tender-heartedness. What does that mean? Well, it's related to kindness, but it flows from it. It's not only recognizing where someone's hurt and trying to help them. It's a general demeanor about people and suffering in general, just the fallen condition of people. It's like Jesus looking at Jerusalem and just weeping. Or when Jesus was at Lazarus' tomb and wept, I think he wept just at the human condition that it brought it to the place where there was death like this and the suffering. He knew he would raise Lazarus again. Why did he weep? He wept at unbelief. He wept at people's strains and struggles and their sickness and all the injustices that are on this earth manifested in this man dying. He knew that Lazarus would raise and die again before glory. So there's a tenderheartedness has to do with having the heart of God towards the suffering of other people. It's just a sense of empathy, trying to empathize with someone's hurt and someone's pain. And I would definitely, definitely caution us in a political season with all sorts of arguments made um, that can make us cold-hearted if we're not careful. And Christians, there's no place for this for us. We should endeavor to appreciate anybody else's suffering. Don't analyze all the ways they brought fault into it, because trust me, we've all done the same. At least at the moment of impact, appreciate and empathize. That's what God calls us to do. And that will certainly inform how we might behave or act towards others. But be tenderhearted. And if you start right in the body of Christ, without judgment, just feel for your brothers and sisters and some issue they're having, some struggle they're having. Kindness leads to tenderheartedness. In a community that empathizes with one another, especially in our struggles, will help us with all manner of challenges that come our way. And if we're working at that, we will not have time to be focusing on the other things that sometimes fill our minds and hearts, this bitterness and wrath that can come from self-focus. Finally, notice, you might say the culmination of the whole passage as far as putting on this clothes, these new clothes that befit living people spiritually. Put on a forgiving heart, forgiving one another, verse 32 as God in Christ forgave you. If you have any trouble with all of the rest of this, 
that last phrase, as God in Christ forgave you, really brings it all home to us, doesn't it? How can I forgive others for the harms they've done towards me or done towards others or towards the church? Forgive one another. How? The way God in Christ forgave you. Literally, it's act in grace toward one another. Act in light of the grace God's shown you towards others. We go from being forgiven ourselves to being able to forgive others. All of the new clothes that we put on are because of Christ. And nothing could picture it better than this last phrase in verse 32. Forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Now, this is not to say, brothers and sisters, when someone wrongs us or sins, that there are not consequences still for those sins in relationship, in conjunction, or in relationship with each other, the church. These are still there in many cases. But forgiveness can still be extended. Because here's the thing. Every one of us has sinned against God, and it deserves a consequence. It has to be paid for. None of us has done something to God that can just be overlooked. He's the perfectly holy just one. God, though, recognizing the need to guard his justice at the same time to show grace, God calls upon his son to take that which we deserve. So Jesus does absorb the wrath of God that we should be getting for our sins. He absorbs it for us and God accepts his perfect sacrifice in our stead. And we are forgiven. We're forgiven because of Christ. That kind of forgiveness is pretty limitless in our lives, we know. Think of all the ways we sinned against God. And any one of those sins was enough to cast us to hell. With that reality, governing the whole of our lives, the grace of God that just envelops us when we think of what we've been forgiven of, that we've contributed nothing, the whole buildup of Ephesians 1 through 3. Now, with that kind of demeanor, that kind of understanding, we can forgive one another. How? as God in Christ forgave you. I don't want to make this too strong of a litmus because those kinds of statements, you know, can be taken the wrong way. But I do think where there's a lack of forgiveness in someone who professes to be a Christian when they just won't forgive a sin, it's okay to say, brother or sister, have you grasped the fullness of the gospel in truth? We have to forgive if we recognize what we've been forgiven of. I think there's a continuum here. Kindness towards others leads us to be tender-hearted or empathetic. We come alongside them and try to help them along, and then we at the same time recognize their, their pain, their struggle, their issues. When we're empathetic, we realize how bad off we all really are apart from God's grace. Don't spend too much time empathizing with someone else to realize you could be them. You could be in the same situation. There's nothing really saying it'd be different. This leads us to be forgiving towards one another, patient with one another, especially when they sin against us, and that will happen. And when we sin against them, you hope that they will see the same. We are forgiving towards others because we never lose sight of how God has forgiven us. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. What a community, brothers and sisters, of Redeemer that we would be, um, that we would continue to grow to be, I hope, if we would take to heart this, this clothing, if we would spend time um, prayerfully asking God to help us live out this identity we have in Christ, not as insecure people who think God will zap us if we don't do it just right, but as thankful people who recognize the depth of forgiveness we have in Christ and want everyone to sense that same forgiveness. 
That's what the great benefit of all of this living out who we are in Christ amounts to. You know, one of the reasons my parents kept me busy when I was an adolescent playing sports and being involved in other activities was basically, my dad would tell me oftentimes, I hear him tell his brothers this too about my cousins who are older than me. I keep him in all this stuff so he, stay, he doesn't have time to get into trouble. For the most part, that worked. Same thing here. If we're working out this new clothing, so to speak, that God's given us, we won't have occasion to fall in to wearing the old clothes. We won't want to bend down and pick up the, the nasty grave, grave clothes again. When we're intentionally working on speaking the truth in love, we won't have occasion to speak lies and be dishonest. When we're intentionally analyzing the events of our lives and the world through the lens of God's holiness and his justice rather than our own vindication, we could actually live in a place of righteous indignation. When we're seeing everything in our life as a stewardship from God, a great gift from him, no matter how much it is, We don't have occasion to compare with what other people have, to covet other people's stuff, to be jealous of where they are in life. Instead, we're just thankful for what God's given us. And then we work hard with whatever it is. And we look for ways to build other people up with it, to be generous with what we have. When we are regularly looking to speak grace-giving words to others, when we are seeking to encourage others by what we say to them, we will have less occasion to speak words that tear others down. When we are intentional about kindness, empathizing with others, looking for ways in which we can apply the forgiveness we have received towards others in relationship with them, then we will have much less occasion to stay bitter and wrathful towards others. There is Lazarus, raised from the dead and standing in the entrance of the tomb, and all these people are watching who have been mourning him for four days, and they had to gasp when they saw this figure alive underneath, covered in the grave clothes, standing there, wrapped in those clothes. A living person doesn't wear those. Unbind him, Jesus says. Then Lazarus put on clothes that fit his new state. In a very similar way, this is the exhortation to all of us in the church, all of us Christians, his new community. He's saying to us, unbind yourself of the old clothes. Put on the new clothes that reflect who you are as new creatures in Christ and a new community in Christ. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we confess our total dependence on the righteousness of Christ given to us by union with him through faith. We confess that even the faith that binds us to Christ is a gift from you. Our prayer is that our lives would manifest our identity with Christ. We want to honor you with our lives, and we know that it starts right here in the church among fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, my closing prayer for chapter 4 of Ephesians is that you would help us to recognize the old clothes that we are wearing and put them off. But Lord, as shown so clearly by your word, we are called to put on new clothes, the new clothes that are listed here, that are shown here. And for this, we need more of your grace. So please pour it upon us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.